not next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll have a guest speaking for us uh, that's going to be ministering. And then the following Sunday, I'll end the rest of the year with uh, talking about myrrh as a gift for a king. And um, so the, the series, we know of the three gifts brought by the wise men. And really, they represent perfect gifts that we can give to our king. And today we're going to focus on those first two gifts, gold and, myrrh, uh, gold and frankincense. I always want to mix those up. I want to say gold, myrrh, and frankincense. But it's gold, uh, frankincense, and then myrrh. See, I started to do it again. Um, and so, uh, just so you understand, the next three services we will have, I'll preach this sermon, we'll have a guest speaker, and then the candlelight service, December 22nd uh, at that morning, 11 a.m., I'll be preaching about myrrh, and then coming next year, because it's coming so fast, I'll go ahead and mention this, Champions Week uh, starts January 12th, and we'll have a guest minister on that Sunday, uh, a great friend of mine, Jeremy Mills, who pastors here in Georgia, is going to be with us, and I'm excited about this. He is a phenomenal preacher. You do not want to miss it, and so he'll be ministering to us, and then January 19th, we'll wrap up Champions Week uh, with a vision service. And uh, 2019 has been a great year. 2020 is going to be an awesome year. And I'm excited about what God is going to do. Well, we have scriptures. And if you have your Bible or uh, device and got scripture on that, you want to pull this up. We're going to go Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A little bit longer reading than normal. And I don't usually start out reading uh, scripture for most of my sermons, but today we will, and uh, forgive me for just a moment, I'm going to ditch this cough drop. How many other people are surviving on uh, cough drops right now? Cough drops and cold medicine. No, not cold medicine, but this, uh, this cool air, a little bit drier air has been bugging my throat, and I thought today I'm going to suck on a cough drop before I preach. And it may be good, it may be bad, we'll see. Uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for, this it is, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now, in case you're uh, not aware, and I know what we show in a nativity and we show in, in plays and dramas and things, the wise men did not actually show up at the stable, the manger. They actually showed up at the home of Jesus, and it probably by uh, some math, we can understand that Jesus was probably 
around the age of two years old and younger. And we know this because when we read ahead, Herod has all of the children that are two and under, males, killed. And so we can understand that uh, they were coming at a much later time. They saw the star when Jesus was born, but they came from a far away, far east country to where Jesus was at. And so uh, understand that every time you see the nativity, it's, it's kind of this picturesque ideal, but it's not historically accurate. The other thing that we don't know is we don't know how many wise men that there were. We just know the gifts that they brought. There could have been 150 wise men. I don't believe that there were, but I'm just saying we don't have a number. We just know the gifts that were mentioned that they brought. And so historically, what we have as a picture of the nativity is more of a, a liberty taken from uh, departing from Scripture, the historical account. So understand that. It's kind of like whenever you see one of those films and it says inspired by true events. It's not historically accurate, right? It's just inspired by some true events. So verse 7, we're at verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over the where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So we can tell from the story that Herod, the king, he was not concerned with worshiping Jesus, the new king. He was concerned mainly and mostly with losing his position of power. That's what he was concerned with. He was concerned that he was going to now be the outgoing king because the king of the Jews was born. And so he later has every child, when they don't return and tell him exactly what they found, he later has every child aged two and under murdered to ensure one thing, that he would retain his throne. He wanted to retain his throne. Now, just like what faced the wise men in their day, a battle between a living king and a king being brought into the world, there's a battle of two kings that is happening to the death in our lives. And here, if you don't understand anything else today, I want you to understand this. One king in our life, must die for the other king to reign. One king in our life must die so that the other king, the true king, the king of kings, can reign in our life. We don't know how many wise men that there were that came to visit Jesus, but uh, 
we know that these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they represented gifts that were appropriate to give to a king. The queen of Sheba brought similar gifts to Solomon when she traveled to visit King Solomon in Israel. Matthew 12, 24 says that one greater than Solomon is here. And so I have come to believe that these gifts can come to represent something in our own life that we should be giving to the king of kings. They represent the things in our life that we should uphold to him and continually surrender to him that he truly does deserve. If he's greater than King Solomon and he's greater than all, then surely the honor of the king demands that we should surrender gifts to him. And so each of these, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, represent gifts from our own lives that we can and should give to Jesus. Now listen, if your relationship with Jesus only goes so far that you're trying to escape hell and earn salvation or receive salvation, not earn it, but receive salvation, there's a problem. Because a relationship should go much deeper than that. It should be about what honors God, what brings glory to God. I have to tell you, there are things in my life that I do, they have nothing to do with salvation. They have everything to do with honoring my God. Just like in a marriage relationship. There are things that I do in my marriage that I surrender or I give or I do on purpose that court wouldn't say, now you have to do that or you have negated your marriage contract. But I do it because I want to honor my wife and I want to bring glory to my wife. And our relationship with God should be very much the same way. There are certain things that we should do in our lives that are only to give Him honor, to glorify Him, to let everyone outside of that relationship know that He sits in a certain place in our life. He sits on the throne of our lives. So gold, gold was the usual offering presented to kings by their subjects. It was often brought to pay respect to the king. As long as 2500 BC, that far back, gold has been especially prized and used as a medium of exchange. It was the foundation of money after the time of trading goods. Gold became an exchange of medium. And so in both the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, we see gold was used plentiful. It was used everywhere. It was on all of the artifacts of that that tabernacle and that temple. So we see that gold is associated with worship. Gold is often given as a gift between loved ones, wedding rings, things like that of value. God had them bring gold to build His temple and gold to build His tabernacle. And we're told that in the heavenly city we will walk on streets of gold. Now, majority of us in here, if we own any gold other than what maybe comes in a ring or on a watch or uh, the little bit that we don't know and realize is in our cell phones and things like that, um, 
Most of us, if we have investments in gold, we would have them held by the government, basically, without knowing that that's exactly where they're held. Most of us would not go home and pick up our gold bar and polish it up and set it back in its prized place. If you have one, I would love to see it. I just, just throw that out there, that if you do have one, I just would love to see it. Even if it's a small one, it would just be really cool. Um, but for you and I, gold represents our money and materialism of life. I love Christmas, but I don't like the mass commercialization of Christmas and what it has become. It's been enveloped in this spirit of materialism that's pervasive in our society. And we don't always realize and recognize it because uh, we live in the top 3% of the world. The poorest person in the United States is still in the top 3% of the rest of the world. And so we're continually bombarded with this message that what you have is not enough. You need more. You need a bigger house. You need a better car. You need a newer cell phone. You need a larger salary. You need whiter teeth. You need fresher breath. You need nicer clothes. You need to look not as old as you look now. There's plastic surgery for that. And on and on it goes that this ideal is slowly driven into us that we are not enough, that what we have is not enough. And what it is, it is materialism. And materialism is the monster of more. More, more, more. It's interesting. One of the Ten Commandments forbids coveting. Now, coveting is an old word. It's not one that we often use uh, anymore, but it simply means the uncontrolled desire to acquire. The uncontrolled desire to acquire. And the Hebrew word, kamad, C-H-A-M-A-D, in, when we transliterate it, in that commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, it means to desire something you were never meant to own. That's why the command specifies not to covet your neighbor's possessions, the things your neighbor has. And here's the thing that you need to understand. Just because someone else has it doesn't mean that you need it. Just because someone else has it doesn't mean that you need it. And here's the challenge. None of us can enthrone a true king unless in the process we dethrone our own kings, our other kings. And the other kings being the kings of material goods and the kings of uh, anything that would take worship other than God. The other kings in our life that want to establish themselves in our life. Can I tell you today, without you being too upset at me, getting offended that what you need and I know this is a pressure-filled time of the season we think we've got to buy everyone gifts and we've got to do everything we can make everybody happy and there's probably somebody on your list it may be a child it may be a brother or sister a loved one the mother father has some 
thing that they have mentioned they desire and it's outside of your realm of possibility of getting it for them, but you still want to make them happy, right? But can I tell you this without offending you? What you need today is not more money. What you need today is not more money. You're saying, well, I've got bills that are due and I'm still trying to buy these gifts. What you need is not more money. Jesus never interacted with someone and told them, you know what you need? You need more money. You don't see that in Scripture anywhere. No one comes to Jesus and says, I have this problem. And he says, you need more money. Because that's never an answer. More money is not the thing. There are some things you need more of. Money is not one of them. Because we have to dethrone the other kings in our life. And if Christ is not Lord over the money you have now and the possessions you have now, then he is not Lord. Period. He is not Lord. In Luke 19, Jesus Jesus gauged Zacchaeus' spiritual condition by his willingness to part with his money. That's how Jesus gauged Zacchaeus. Now imagine if Jesus had done that today. What would we say? He's money grubbing. He's after more money. But Jesus was gauging spirituality by something beyond money. In Matthew 19, he gauged the rich young ruler's spiritual condition by his unwillingness to part with his money. There's an undeniable connection. So Jesus calls us to take action that breaks our bondage to money and possessions and frees us to live under His Lordship. And listen, when you live under His Lordship, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the entire world. Everything in it is already His, whether people recognize it or not. But our handling of money is a litmus test of our true character. It's a litmus test of our spirituality. And as an individual, as families, as leaders, as a church, our stewardship of our money and possessions becomes the story of our lives. Small decisions matter. Because your biography, my biography, the biography of this church, it is being written. And every one of those things written down, we will be judged on. Materialism is the worst investment that we can make with our time and our talent and our treasure. And I want you to understand that. It's not just about money. Because you may not have a lot of money, but you may have an excess of time. Or you may have an excess of talent. There are many ways that you can give and surrender to God. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is exactly why the Bible devotes twice as many verses to money as it does to faith and prayer. Did you know that? The Bible talks more about money 
than it does about faith and prayer. 2,350 verses concern money. 1,500 each. 500 contain faith. 500 contain prayer. 1,000. Jesus said more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Why did the Savior spend 15% of his recorded words on money? Why are one out of every 10 verses in the Gospels about money? Why was it that Jesus devoted 16 of his 38 parables to money? Why did he say more about money than any other subject? Because money and possessions, referred to as mammon in the Bible, have the greatest potential to replace the lordship of Jesus in your and my life. That's why. This is why I preach and teach about the principles of tithing and offering. Tithing is that first tenth, just so everyone understands, first tenth, return to the Lord. And offering is everything above the tithe given out of our own free will. I feel that the majority of Christians do not understand the significance of these principles that can take place in their life. It's not about funding the church. It's not about funding the kingdom. The kingdom will be fine when we have no money. It's about us. It was about our souls and who's on the throne. There was not just one tithe for Israel. Often people think it's just clear cut. There was one tithe in Israel. But there were actually three. One tithe supported the priests and Levites. Another provided for times of worship and feasts in the house of God. A third tithe supported orphans, widows, and the poor. This third tithe was collected every third year. So this amount averaged out to be 23% per year of tithing. That's just the Old Testament. Tithing, 10%, and I'm going over this because I want you to understand. Tithing, 10% is a minimum standard. It's not a maximum goal. It's not of I've given a tithe or I've returned a tithe, and so I've done what's required. It's a minimum. Giving is not just about donating money. It's about conquering the king that's in our life. King named Mammon. And that means we give, not just of our treasure, but we give of our time and our talents. And if you're a high capacity person, which every person in here to me is a high capacity person, I am often, often amazed with people. And some some make great amounts of money and some have great amounts of talent and some have so much time that they give away and they sacrifice for others. And I'm, I'm impressed constantly with people's lives and what they do. And I want to say, if you're a high-capacity person in any of those areas, your time, your talent, your treasure, you're robbing God and His church if you're not giving of those things. And when I say church, I'm not talking about Branches Church. I'm talking about the kingdom. I'm talking about the church. What would you tell the widow woman in Mark chapter 12 who gives her last two coins in the offering at church? What did Jesus say? He said, assuredly, Mark 12, 43 and 44. Is that one coming up? 
He said, assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. He said, she's given all, more than those others who have given to the treasury. What would you tell the diligent businessman in Luke chapter 12 who wants to expand his business so he can live comfortably in the future and retire early? We would tell the one, she's foolish. Don't give everything. That's just foolish, right? We'd tell the businessman, well, that's a smart business decision. It's a good move. But Jesus in Luke 12, 20 and 21, he said, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those will, then whose will those things be which you have provided? Sharp words. Lord, help us to do what we must to be rich toward you. Because one of two kings will receive your gifts of time, talents, and treasures. It's either going to be this world, self, or Jesus. I'm talking about gifts that are worthy of a king. The second gift was frankincense. Frankincense was very costly and it was a fragrant substance. It was distilled from a boswellia tree found in the deserts in the Middle East where it has been traded for over 5,000 years. It's a white resin or gum obtained by slitting the bark of the tree, allowing the, slap, the, the sap to flow out. The Hebrew word for frankincense is labona. It means whiteness. This is this, this pure white sap. And so this white colored juice would flow out of the wound of the tree and this gum would harden for three months and at the end of summer it'd be gathered up and then sold in the form of tears. Tears were little clumps of hard resin. So notice it came from a wound and it was sold in tears. It was used as medicine, as perfume, and it was most importantly used as worship. In, in the act of worship. Frankincense is highly fragrant. When burned, it, it would fill this whole room with an overpowering aroma. And so it burned as the Spirit, the, the Scripture says, a sweet savor to the Lord. That phrase is found 16 times just in Leviticus alone talking about worship. And so frankincense, the second gift, represents worship. Instructions on how to use frankincense can be found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Frankincense was associated with one particular thing. It was sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. It was burned in the altar of incense, a sacrifice of prayer. It was burned in the meat and meal offering, a sacrifice before the Lord. It was placed on the loaves of the table of showbread, sacrifice, daily bread. It was also taken behind the veil on the great day of atonement, included in the worship of the Lord, the day of atonement. Frankincense in Scripture represents several things. It represents prayer. It represents worship. 
It represents a sacrifice which must be pleasing to God. Frankincense was burned on the altar and the altar of the fire was never allowed to go out. And so God describes himself as a consuming fire and a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.29, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Paul says that our work will be judged by fire. Our work is either worship to God or it's idolatry in God's eyes. But you never thought about work that same way. When you go to work on Monday, your work is either one of two things. It's either worship to God or it's idolatry, and it will be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. It's either going to be worship or it's going to be idolatry. And so the question becomes, what is your passion burning for? What is your passion burning for? Our worship must be burning for Him. Frankincense and white in color, it represents a pure substance and our, our worship must come from a holy lifestyle or it's worthless. First Peter 1, 15-16, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So just real quick, a couple of things about our worship. Our worship must be holy. Our worship must include the death of our flesh because it's sacrifice. Our worship must continue even when we're hurting. Our worship must continue. These are gifts for a king. Frankincense had this heavy scent, that sweet-smelling sacrifice aroma that I mentioned before. If you think about it, in their sacrifices, flesh would burn on the altar. And so you go into the temple, you go into the tabernacle, you had the smell of burning flesh. Has anybody ever burnt yourself, burnt hair off your arm, your hair off your head? Let the ladies, let the curler get a little too hot. Singe it stinks doesn't it imagine that smell all the time and so frankincense had to be this heavy sweet smelling thing to wash that out the tabernacle was constantly filled with that smell of burning flesh and the the incense was the only thing that could clear that smell so you can't worship god and flesh you can't worship God and flesh. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Think about that sometime. When I have my flesh is ruling my passions and it's controlling me, I am not pleasing God. So worship must include the death of our flesh. Frankincense was produced as a result of that wound in a tree. This is one of the reasons that it was an appropriate gift for Jesus. Jesus is going to be wounded and he's going to die for us on a tree. 
But I have a question for you. Can you worship when you're wounded? Can you worship when you're wounded? We think wounds in life are these horrible, terrible things. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that suffering is great. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is your wounds, whether you realize it or not, can be a blessing in your life because there's no sweeter worship that will ever be given in your life than that worship that comes from a time of being wounded. A person who has been wounded and continues, I will worship the Lord. Job, that person is giving something to God that no one else can give because no one else experiences that same exact thing. Psalm 51, 17, listen to the scripture in that, in that ideal that the greatest worship you'll ever give comes when you're hurting. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Our worship must continue even when we're hurting. So there's one of two kings in your life. One, one of two of those are going to live and survive. And one of two of those kings is going to receive either your worship, it's either going to be self, it's going to be the world, it's going to be Jesus. And you have to choose which one am I going to keep on the throne and which one is going to die. Because I can tell you the one that is there in your flesh, it's doing everything it can to kill what the Spirit is doing, maybe in a manger, maybe in a home, maybe somewhere else. It's doing everything it can to kill that other king that wants to sit on that throne. Paul said, take off the old man. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Become that new creature in Christ. Notice it doesn't say God's going to take that old man away. It doesn't say God's going to make you become that new man. It says we'll be made new creatures in him. But we have to do the work of killing the king that's already on the throne. We have to do the work of killing what's already there if we want Jesus to step into that throne in our lives. If you'll stand with me. Not next Sunday, but the next Sunday, I'm going to preach on myrrh. What you may not realize about myrrh is myrrh represents bitterness. It was bitter. And it also came from the wound of a tree or a bush. But these are gifts for a king. Gold represents our time and our talent, our treasure. Frankincense represents our worship, our time with him in prayer, our time with him worshiping him, our time with him that we surrender to him in worship. Even when we're hurt, even when we're wounded. I don't know what 2019 
held for you when you reflect on the last 11 months of the year. I'm certain that there were probably times where you were hurt. Maybe someone hurt you. Maybe it was a circumstance, a condition of life that you had to walk through. It it hurt you. And I watched people in our church deal with overwhelming circumstances, health problems, family challenges, wounds that were inflicted by life. And I, I was amazed by the ones who, who took those wounds, continued carrying those wounds and scars, but they didn't let it determine their worship. Now, I wish I could say that for everyone all the time. But every one of us, it may not have been this year, it may not be next year, but at some point, there's going to be some wound inflicted on you in your spirit, in your life, in your body that you're going to want to stop and hold that worship back. But it's in that moment that that worship becomes the sweetest thing the sweetest gift that you can give to a king every head bowed and every eye closed with me for just a moment Lord help us God gives the strength and the courage to surrender to you the gifts you deserve as a king Lord, we want you on the throne of our lives. We want you to have dominion and reign in our lives. We don't want to be under the bondage of another king. We don't want to be surrendered to our flesh and to this world. God, we want to be surrendered to you. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would give us the fortitude and the strength, God, that even when we're wounded, even when life is a trial, even when we're struggling, that we continue to give the gifts that are worthy to a king. God, I pray that you'd reach that person here right now. they came in here and they have a wound right now that wants to fester up and wants to just hold on to what you've intended the wound to allow to happen. For there to be something that flows from the wound, a sweet, beautiful sap of tears and wound that's open before you that worship flows from I pray in Jesus name that that person God that you would bring comfort to them that you would wrap your arms around them God let your spirit minister to them and let them know that there's a gift even in the wounding a gift that is for a king In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Why don't you surrender a gift of worship to Him right now?
she's going to begin to sing. Why don't you open your heart and your mind, begin to allow the Spirit of God that is here right now to minister.